Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York's 57th and first female governor, Kathy Hochul, took office this week and said she wants people to believe in government again. This after multiple scandals, including allegations of sexual harassment, that drove her predecessor Andrew Cuomo from office. Hochul, a fellow Democrat, also announced new COVID-19 vaccination and mask mandates for school staff and says the state may reopen mass vaccination sites to hasten an effort to get everyone booster shots. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. This is an emotional moment for me, but it is one that I prepared for. Joined by her husband, father, children, and siblings, Kathy Hochul was sworn in as the first female governor in New York's history and the first one from western New York in over 100 years. Hochul, dressed in white, the color worn by the suffragettes, takes over after 10 years of Andrew Cuomo. He resigned rather than face an almost certain impeachment and conviction in the state legislature. The state's attorney general found that Cuomo sexually harassed and in one case sexually assaulted 11 women and presided over an office rife with intimidation and bullying. He's also under federal investigation for potentially covering up nursing home deaths during the COVID-19 pandemic, and he's been accused of improperly using staff to help him write and edit a $5 million memoir. Hochul, in a brief question and answer session with reporters, says she hopes to change the culture at the Capitol and institute a fresh, collaborative approach. I want people to believe in their government again. It's important to me that people have faith. Our strength comes from the faith and the confidence of the people who put us in these offices. Later, in a brief address introducing herself to New Yorkers, Hochul says her top priority is to take proactive steps to get the rising infection rate of the COVID-19 Delta variant under control. She says when schools open in a couple of weeks, everyone, students, teachers, and administrators will be required to wear masks, and there'll be strict vaccination mandates. We need to require vaccinations for all school personnel with an option to test out weekly at least for now. Hochul says New Yorkers can expect more vaccination requirements now that the FDA has fully approved the Pfizer vaccine and is expected to soon fully approve the Moderna and Johnson & Johnson vaccines. And she says the state will likely be restarting its mass vaccination sites around New York to more quickly provide needed booster shots this fall. Another priority will be to deal with New York's eviction moratorium, enacted earlier in the pandemic, which ends August 31st. Though the state received over $2.7 billion in federal aid for tenants and small landlords, only about $109 million has been given out so far. Hochul says she's assembling a team to expedite distribution of the funds. She says she'll also fix delays in handing out other aid, including a fund for workers not eligible for enhanced unemployment benefits, known as the Excluded Workers Fund. I am not at all satisfied with the pace that this COVID relief is getting out the door. I want the money out now. I want it out with no more excuses and delays. And the governor says she will also act to make state government a safe and ethical workplace. She'll require in-person anti-sexual harassment training and instruction in ethical practices for every single state employee.
Hochul also met with the Democratic majority legislative leaders, Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie and Senate Leader Andrea Stork-Cousins. Stork-Cousins also broke a glass ceiling when she became the first woman, an African-American woman, to lead the Senate. She says for the first time, Albany's legendary three-men-in-a-room decision-making process, that's the governor and the two legislative leaders, will be made up of two women, Hochul and Stork-Cousins, and Hastie, an African-American man. Hopefully inspiring to so many people who had never been aspiring, frankly, to be in the quote-unquote room where it happens. Speaker Hasty says the diversity of New York's new leadership sends a message. I'm a father of a young 12-year-old daughter. I want her to believe she can do anything in the world and that it, uh, she won't be uh, restricted based on the fact that she was born a girl. Neither leader committed, though, to any specific actions or changes, saying the talks with the new governor are just beginning. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Meanwhile, one of the first choices Kathy Hochul will face as governor of New York is whether to continue her predecessor's state of emergency on gun violence. We get that story from North Country Public Radio's Ryan Finnerty. Speaking several weeks before the recent resurgence of COVID-19 and investigation that fatally wounded his political career, Governor Andrew Cuomo declared a different kind of epidemic was plaguing America. We went from one epidemic to another epidemic. We went from COVID to the epidemic of gun violence. 51 were shot, 13 died of COVID over the July 4th weekend. Cuomo went on to declare a state of emergency over gun crime, but the political and pandemic winds shifted dramatically over the ensuing weeks. Now it will be up to Kathy Hochul whether or not to continue the state's emergency footing on gun violence, currently set to expire on September 4th. In the past, Hochul has been a supporter of gun rights, even earning a favorable rating from the National Rifle Association while representing Western New York in Congress in 2012. But after a break following a losing bid for re-election, Hochul returned to the political scene to run for lieutenant governor with a far more liberal agenda, highlighted in this 2014 campaign ad. In the most Republican district in the state of New York, I campaigned hard to fight the Paul Ryan Tea Party budget that would have decimated Medicare and left our seniors out in the cold. And despite the politics of my district, I never backed down from our core democratic values, pro-choice, pro-marriage equality, and pro-worker values. That shift reflects the political necessity of running for statewide office, where the median voter is far to the left of Hochul's former congressional district. That subsequent shift included moving to the left on guns. During that 2014 campaign, Hochul called the failure of Congress to pass background check legislation following the Sandy Hook Elementary Massacre a disgrace. And she doubled down on support for the Cuomo administration's signature gun control law, the SAFE Act, passed in the wake of that same shooting. Speaking at a pro-gun control rally near New Paltz in 2018, Hochul came out in strong support of other measures, including so-called red flag laws. We're talking about banning assault weapons. We did it here in New York background checks. What's wrong with making sure that people who shouldn't have guns don't have them? Hochul also walked back her earlier positions on other issues, like opposition to providing New York State ID cards to undocumented immigrants. She addressed that change of heart earlier this month in Albany during her first public remarks after Cuomo's resignation announcement. I had taken a position that has now evolved, and that evolution coincides with the evolution of many people, many people in the state of New York. 
That evolution will likely continue. Kathy Hochul has already declared she intends to run for a full term as governor in 2022. That's North Country Public Radio's Ryan Finnerty reporting for the Legislative Gazette. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartok. Alan, New York's first female governor, Kathy Hochul, took office this week and started with the idea that she wanted to make people believe in government again. The idea that confidence has been lost as a result of the many scandals, not only in the Cuomo administration, but throughout the many years I know that you've been studying politics in Albany. That's a tall order because that often comes down to ethics reform, and we've seen how that's gone. Well, the proof will be in the pudding. It was certainly a competent speech. She laid it on the line in terms of what she hoped to accomplish. And as I say, competency was written all over it. Now, we'll see whether or not when somebody gets into power, whether they have the same sense of, for example, ethics reform that they do when they speak to the people. I think she knows that her whole reputation will be on the line. She's going to have to deliver so that people who are watching will say that she's different from Andrew. And I have a feeling that she absolutely means to be. But of course, she has a lot on her plate. She's going to have to bring all of her new people in. She's going to have to live with some of the old people. It was interesting that she, at least for now, has the same health commissioner that Andrew did, who has come in for some criticism in the past. So it is up to her now to show that she has what she says she has. We can all hope that she does and that it will be fine. Certainly the response so far has been very positive by lawmakers. The formula that always seemed to work in the past, Alan, was the so-called three men in a room. And now you've got two women and a man in the room. The Assembly Speaker Carl Heasty even joking about the fact that he's in the minority now when it comes to leadership and decisions in New York. And of course, the Assembly Majority Leader is a woman as well, an African-American, Crystal Peoples-Stokes. Your thoughts on the shifting of power toward women in New York? Well, first of all, it is a wonderful thing. There's no question that women and men both deserve equality. And she is the first woman who will be governor of New York. She's already announced that she's running for a full term herself. Her competition, I believe, will be or even should be to James, who is the person who basically brought Andrew Cuomo down with her scathing report about the governor's actions towards women and other things that have been raised. So it may well come down to a primary. We'll see. I expect it will. So from a time when women were out of it in government, thank goodness, or whatever higher power there is, we have finally gotten to a point where women are taking their proper place in all of this. Alan, you mentioned that she says she's going to run for another term. She's noted for being the kind of politician that is all over the place, gone to all the counties in New York, is feet on the ground type of person. And as one very important politician once said, all politics is local. How important is that if she's going to run in a secret election? 
Well, David, I think a problem is that most people don't know her. So when you're a lieutenant governor, especially when you're a lieutenant governor who the sitting governor did not want to be governor, he made that clear. He wanted her out of there and she wouldn't do it, threatened the primary. And so she stayed, but she was hardly the person who he was going to rely on and give major responsibilities to as presidents lately giving to vice presidents. So she did what lieutenant governors do. She visited all these places, and now that will help her to some degree. On the other hand, I still don't think a lot of people know her or know what she's all about. They will, of course. And as they do, inevitably, right, the poll numbers will reflect those also that don't like what she's doing, including things like mask mandates for school staff. Well, look, she knows that most people, when quizzed about this, will tell you that the children should be protected and that we want our kids to continue to be healthy. And the way to do that is with masks. The American people know it. The polls know it. There are, of course, some people who are adamant about not having their children protected this way. That is, in my opinion, obscene. But it is nothing that we haven't seen before from these people. You know, you got to do what's right. I think politicians sometimes forget, David, that doing what's right is the way to succeed, even if in the short run it doesn't look that good or that there are repercussions. You do what's right. Should children wear masks in school to protect themselves and their lives? Yes. Delta variant is here. We know it. And we know it's extraordinarily powerful. If masks will help, they should be worn. Period. End of discussion. Punto final. Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Shartok. are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. One of two proposed Green County solar farms has been approved by New York State authorities. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports. Flint Mine Solar got the green light earlier this month from the State Board on Electric Generation Siting and the Environment. The 100-megawatt power plant is to be developed in an area spanning the southern end of the town of Kuksaki and the northern section of the town of Athens. Bill Moore is with Hudson Energy Development, which is building the power plant. You know, we've been developing larger-scale renewables like this for a long time, and, um, you know, it's our way of thinking that the key to success is finding sites that aren't that controversial. and and. You know, solar is very different than wind. It's much more of a horizontal resource with, you know, wind machines very much a vertical resource. And so uh, we need to find places where we can install, you know, large amounts of panels without impinging on people's views out their, you know, their kitchen windows. And uh, that's what attracted us to this site in the first first place. it's, uh, you know, largely abandoned farmland. Solar energy has been touted as a way to help fight climate change. While some residents in areas where solar farms are being proposed welcome the facilities, others are saying, not in my backyard. Kim Rose is a spokesperson for Saving Green, Citizens for Sensible Solar. I have sold my home in the community as of last year, but still reside here for the moment. At this point, however, I have no financial stake in the game, just a genuine concern for Koksaki's future. 
What I do also have is the perspective of someone who has grown up in this area, who has witnessed its evolution from a struggling economic base to what now stands to be a thriving community of creative, engaged people. One who sees that wedding venues, resorts, and Airbnb are all fueling tourism once again, as people come here to enjoy our rural beauty, history, and wildlife. Rose fears if additional solar projects are approved, Kaksaki, Athens, and similar communities across the state will eventually be blanketed in solar. Chris Martin is also with Saving Green. The Kuksaki residents supported the Flint Mine Project, but opposes Hecate Energy's proposed 450-acre Green County solar farm, up for approval in September. We are the only town in New York State that has two Article 10 plants. Now, Article 10 means that it's a large enough plant for the state to decide on the siting and not the, the local community. The state can override local laws. So we kind of felt this was an awful lot of uh, solar development for one town. Martin has environmental concerns as well. What's going to be used for solar is a large contiguous area of grassland habitat. And there are a couple of threatened and endangered species that live there and can't live a whole lot of other places. Um, the short-eared owl, there are maybe a hundred of them left in New York State, and they live there during the winters. I've actually seen them during the summers, too. It's, it's quite exciting to actually to watch them in broad daylight um, uh, hunting off the fence lines. Um, they can't hunt among solar panels. That's, that's out of the question. So we've, we've been concerned about some of those issues. Meantime, Morse has several months of engineering are ahead with construction of Flint Mine likely to begin in early 2022. Around 500 construction and manufacturing jobs would be created as a result of the project. He notes the project will be built in strict conformance with the conditions that were laid out in the certificate that was issued by the Public Service Commission. This project is very unusual in that uh, the panels will be installed on 10 or 11 separate sets of farm fields, and so there's no there's no one vantage point anywhere in that that corner of Kuxaki and Athens where you can see the entire project, you know, from one viewpoint. Uh, in fact, you'd be hard-pressed to see more than maybe a tenth of the project from any one viewpoint. Officials say Flint Mine will provide approximately 175,000 megawatt hours of renewable energy, roughly equivalent to the average annual electricity needs of the 21,000 homes in Greene County. Its solar panel system will tie a high-voltage interconnection to National Grid's electric lines. Moore anticipates the facility will be operational by early 2023. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us on the Legislative Gazette this week, our old friend, Dr. Lynn Porodnik, medical marijuana doctor from Westchester County area of New York. Welcome back, Lynn. Thanks, David. It's great to be here again. And so much is going on. It's a great well, time to be here. No question about it. I mean, 
quite a shakeup in the leadership in New York State. We now have Governor Kathy Hochul, who hails from the Buffalo area, the now former lieutenant governor, taking over for scandal-ridden Governor Andrew Cuomo, who resigned earlier this week after sexual harassment allegations and the impending impeachment trial. The issue, of course, that we're speaking about is the legalization of marijuana. We have, of course, medical marijuana in New York, and marijuana is now legal. In fact, it was perfectly legal at the recent New York State Fair for people to smoke in designated smoking areas. And from a story I've heard, that really didn't cause any problems at the New York State Fair. And also, probably most importantly, we have a new governor leading the effort to get the legalized industry up and running, and that requires appointment to the Cannabis Control Board. The latest news we heard, Dr. Prodnick, is that the Assembly Majority Leader, Crystal Peoples-Stokes, also hails from Buffalo and is a good friend of the new Governor Hochul, that she's ready, willing, and able to move very quickly to get this established. Give us a sense of what exactly they need to do so that we can begin to purchase legalized cannabis. They got a lot to do. And it's great that they're willing to do it. Uh, The problem with our former governor is he was not really interested in cannabis. He saw it as a means to get some revenue and to appease some people. But he personally is not into it. Um, It seems that our new reign, she's open and she's connected with the people who can make this happen. First thing they have to do is uh, Appoint the people in charge. The people who are in charge now, Norm Birnbaum and Axel Barnaby, probably will not be there forever. She wants to bring in a team and do this and do this right. So she needs to bring in the team. They need to write up the the, um, rules and regs for this program. And from what I'm hearing right now, they're willing to go for it. Uh, Our assembly person, Crystal really wants to push for this and has promised to follow through with this initiative, which is great. So what happens now is the regs come out, people will be applying for licenses. Uh, We still don't know how the system's going to be set up. A lot of it is modeled on liquor laws, which gives um, people applying for dispensaries, three stores. They have to be 500 feet from schools, 200 feet from churches, and 1,500 feet apart from another dispensary. That's only the dispensary rules. So there's a lot, a lot involved. Also, with these, in, with these projects, pot projects, uh, people have to find spaces to rent or purchase. If they're renting, there's the problem of who's holding the financing. If there's no underlying mortgage or a mortgage held by a credit union or local bank, that's okay. That's permissible. But if it's an FDIC-bound mortgage, it can be called in and the person can lose their building. Yes. So and Lynn, forgive me for interrupting, but yeah. I know you know Matt Schreiber, the lawyer who we talked to on this program and you helped us connect with, who talked about this big hole between the federal government, and you and I have talked about this before, which doesn't yet accept marijuana as legal and the state, which has legalized it, now you've got these business owners in this strange quandary where they're still stuffing the proceeds, you know, under the bed and under the, in the pillowcase. Or in the ceiling. Yeah. Exactly. It, it's, there's so much that has to be done. It's kind of a joke almost because this is, you know, was 
put into effect by our former governor, and then it just sat there for a long time. And then people who want to apply for licenses hire legal counsel at $10,000 a month or get into lobbyists and all these heavy expenses, paying for rents even, unless there's some hope. Right, and then you have the piece which makes this problem even bigger. The whole idea as part of the legalization of cannabis is to take those who have had suffered under New York's Rockefeller drug laws, many minorities, people of color, put in jail for long terms for small amounts of marijuana, and you want to allow those folks who have been hurt by these laws to have a crack at gaining from the business, the legalized business. And when you're talking about the amount of money it'll take to set up a business, that immediately puts them at a disadvantage. Absolutely. Or if they can secure financing, the rates they have to pay, the amount of the business they have to give away for that is incredible. It's really, it's a shame. What can you say? It's, but at least this population will be given first crack at this. So if they can get it together, get organized, they can do it. Uh, the whole thing of the micro business where you have a vertically integrated program with 20 employees or less, that's really set up to help this population. Also, there are grants available for this. So there is some money out there. But you can't apply for a general business loan. No bank is going to give it to you. So let's talk about the taxes part of it. From what, I, sure. what I've read, I believe the state's going to tax us about 13% for legalized marijuana in New York. I think Massachusetts is at 20%. So you can see where there's some competition between states. But then there's also the idea of the local community, which has to approve it, right? I mean, you can't just open a, a recreational marijuana business in your town unless the community allows it. Right. So right now, there are a lot of meetings about opt-in, opt-out. If you look at local newspapers, um, town boards are gathering. They're having open meetings for their community, and people are going in and voicing their opinions, which is great. But the problem with this is there's a lot, a lot of misinformation. I've attended a few of these meetings. I went to one in Mount Kisco. Two common things that seem to come up at these meetings are the children. People are very concerned that kids will get in, their little kids will get into it. Well, they put their jewelry away, and somehow children don't eat diamond rings. So why can't they store their cannabis appropriately? That's one thing. The other thing is people are very concerned that there is no real test to see if somebody is under the influence or not. If they do the urine test, the urine will stay positive for 30 days. So there's a couple of breathalyzers out there. They haven't been widely accepted, but this seems to be, these two points are really, really come up in the town meetings. We've been speaking with Dr. Lynn Parodnik, medical marijuana doctor in New York. She joins us from time to time, and we can't thank you enough. I hope you'll come back again when we learn more. Anytime, David. You call me, I'm here for you. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2135. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.